I'm pretty sure that most of my listeners have heard of the RCMP, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. It's, uh, it was pretty famous in Hollywood, I think, in the 1930s with some films that yeah, may have not been too accurate in terms of what an RCMP officer was about. I seem to recall some guy crooning to some lovely young woman. But the RCMP is, in fact, Canada's National Police Force. It dates back to 1873 in various manifestations. And it has the, I guess, responsibility in my country of being both a national police force, as well as the force of jurisdiction in eight of the 10 provinces and the three territories, and through an arrangement called contract policing, is actually a municipal police force in many parts of Canada as well. So despite the fact the RCMP is a Canadian police force, it also has had a fairly significant presence abroad. The RCMP is well regarded by many nations, and, they, and many nations turn to the RCMP for assistance in training and with doing their own law enforcement in their own countries. And so I thought I would explore this element today, and I have the great pleasure of welcoming to the podcast a friend of mine, a friend of mine Bill Malone, who spent 26 years with the RCMP, and more interestingly, at least for this podcast, is he spent some time in Afghanistan with the RCMP and actually wrote a book about his, his experiences called Cops in Kabul, a Newfoundland peacekeeper in Afghanistan. So Bill, thanks for taking the time to be on the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me, Phil. It's great to be here. Simple question first, Bill. How does a, a, a young man from, from, as we call it, The Rock, Newfoundland, end up in the RCMP in the first place? Uh, well, it's, it's, it was a bit of a uh, circuitous uh, route to get here. Uh, I uh, initially, when I was going to university, I had no intentions of becoming a police officer. And uh, after I uh, completed my studies at St. of X, uh, I, I was speaking to a couple of friends of my father uh, who were RCMP officers. And, and they had always kind of been, uh, you know, talking to me and about a career in the force and, and, you know, all the interesting things that I'd get to do. So I started looking at it in earnest. And uh, anyway, I decided to throw my name in the hat. And I didn't tell my parents at the time, which is kind of a funny story, because I came home one day from work, and uh, my mom was standing on the front step. And she was such a, a kind-hearted soul, never got angry. And she had this very stern look on her face. <laughs> and Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah, and I'm thinking, oh, there's something going on. And when I got out of the car, she looked at me and she said, I just got a call from the RCMP. They want you to call them oh. as soon as possible. And this I, can't end well, Bill. This can't end well. <laughs> well. Well, the funny thing was, as I said to her, I said, oh, okay, thanks, Mom. And I just walked right by her. And, you know, <laughs> she followed me right in the house. And her biggest concern was that I had done something terribly wrong. But when I told her that I had applied from the, uh, for the RCMP, uh, she ha had this uh, look on her face like, why would you do that? You just got a business degree. <laughs> so um, anyway, it was uh, it, it, it all turned out well because uh, she became probably my most ardent supporter at the end of the day when I got in. Oh, that, that, that's, that's such a great story, Bill. Now, you said you went to SFX. So, so for my um, listeners, that's St. Francis Xavier University. It is in Antigonish, Nova Scotia. So you would have gone to Depot, which was, what, of course, the training headquarters of Regina uh, in Saskatchewan. Right. What was your early career like in the RCMP, Bill, before you went on your international foray? Um, well, I was very, very fortunate. Uh, I had the opportunity. I was presented with the opportunity when I first uh, got recruited into the RCMP 
to uh, take French language training. And uh, after taking an aptitude test, I was sent off to Montreal for a period of eight months to, uh, to learn French. And then upon completion of that, uh, I was sent to depot. Uh, to do my training from there. But um, I remember as we got closer to the end of our training and we went through our staffing interviews, uh, the staffing officer of the day decided that he was going to interview me in French. And I guess my French, oh, wow. my, yeah, I guess my French was proficient enough at the time that they sent me to northern New Brunswick. Okay. Again, for my listeners who don't know Canada very well, uh, New Brunswick is an eastern Atlantic province, one of the four Atlantic provinces in Canada. And the northern, pretty well, third to a half bill is largely Francophone? Yes, there's uh, quite a Francophone population there. The vast majority are uh, bilingual. And and for all the listeners out there, uh, New Brunswick is the only official bilingual province. So... uh, yeah, that's, no, it that's was, true. It was, that's true. It was. Uh, I, I thoroughly enjoyed my I enjoyed my time in New Brunswick. Uh, great people, uh, great opportunities. Now I can assume, Bill, that as a relatively new recruit, a recruit rather, who's assigned to your first uh, duty in Northern New Brunswick, you would have been responsible for what they call not not a great word, but general policing duties. Is that an accurate reflection of what you did at first? Yes, that's correct. General general duty, detachment duties. So out on patrol, uh, dealing with day to day occurrences, uh, much like you would see in any you know big cities or small towns. Okay. Well, your, your life took a bit of a change, Bill. In 2011, you ended up uh, going to Kabul, Afghanistan uh, as part of the RCMP. <clears throat> and uh, you were there as, you were actually there, you were, you were put in command of the uh, Canadian police who were part of the NATO training mission for Afghan, Afghan uh, police officers. How in the world did you end up in Afghanistan? What was that process like? First of all, were you approached? Did you consider it? How does a guy who's doing general police duties in New Brunswick, wherever you were at the time, end up being in Afghanistan, half a world away? So uh, following following 9-11, uh, my whole career took a, a different trajectory from uh, from what I was doing. I was involved in uh, money, laundering, money laundering investigations at the time in New Brunswick. And uh, I got a call to go to Ottawa to help set up uh, with a bunch of my colleagues from across the country to start the first terrorist financing investigative unit. So I I left New Brunswick, ended up in Ottawa. And from there, um, you know, uh, being involved in international policing and and uh, and counterterrorism, I had a real interest in that. So. Over the course of a number of years, and, and as I moved up through the ranks in different positions, I was presented with an opportunity to go as the deputy commander of the Canadian police contingent to Afghanistan in 2011-2012. So, uh, you know, I uh, thought it would, uh, would be uh, a very interesting uh, thing to do, uh, a very challenging environment for sure. But uh, that's essentially how I ended up going to Afghanistan. I, I put my name in the hat and I ended up being selected to go. 
you said that you know Afghanistan would have been a very challenging position. That must be the most uh, understated thing I've heard in a long time, Bill. How did your family and colleagues view this when you put your name in the hat and were selected and were going to be sent off to Afghanistan, which, you know, by 2011, the Taliban is still very, very strong. Uh, I don't think we have the Islamic State affiliate in Afghanistan at that point. But, you know, uh, you know, I, I report on Afghanistan on a daily basis when it comes to terrorism. It hasn't slowed down over the years. Were your, were your friends and family worried about you when you went to Afghanistan? Uh, to say they were worried would be an understatement, Phil. I, uh, <laughs> you know, my, my, my daughters at the time, they were uh, younger, of course, and uh, they kind of had an idea as to where I was going, but I don't know that they truly appreciated the danger. Um, my, my wife was, uh, she was quite concerned, of course, and uh, my poor mother God rest her soul. She uh, she was beside herself, and I and I said to her before I left, I said, "Look, mom, don't watch the news. You know, please don't watch the news." <laughs> and and of course, you know, by saying that, she watched the news, right? Just watched the news, exactly. <laughs> so uh, yeah, it was it was stressful on her, and you know, that's one of the things that uh, you know I, I I regret in the fact that it was stressful on her. Um, but you know, I, I did call her frequently from there and just to reassure her mm -hmm. and, and all my family and friends that everything was okay, because there were times Phil, and when we would have attacks in Afghanistan and, and I was situated mm -hmm. in Kabul, uh, we wouldn't even know about it. Uh, you know, it's much yeah. like living in Canada and something happens in Saskatchewan, right? You might not immediately yeah. hear about it, but of course the phone's ringing off the hook from Ottawa making sure that, yeah. you know, everybody's okay in that. And, and, you know, and that was a good thing that everybody was always concerned about our safety while we were there. Mm -hmm. So you were stationed in Kabul, um, so the capital of Afghanistan, but in a not a great neighborhood. I know that, again, when I follow Afghan news on a daily basis, especially lately, it seems the Taliban have been up, stepping up their attacks in Kabul with mortar attacks and magnetic IEDs, all kinds of things. How did you feel in terms of your own personal safety, Bill, when you were there? I mean, obviously, you're a police officer. You're trained. You're there with your fellow Canadians. You're there probably with other other multinationals and the Afghans. Did you, when you woke up every morning while you are in Kabul, were you concerned for your own personal safety? Um, there was always a concern for your personal safety. I mean, there's you couldn't really take any days off when you were there, um, yeah. given the, the level of threat. And, and some days, I mean, the threat levels were to the point where you were completely locked down. But, um, wow. you know, to go and operate in an environment like that, um, you if you're going to be paralyzed by fear, it's not the place to be. And, and that's okay, because right. it's not for everybody, right? And I don't... You know, we yeah. we had a couple of folks that ended up coming back home for various reasons, and and that's okay. And and in my view, uh, to make a decision to leave the mission is, you know, is commendable because you realize that you're beyond your beyond your limits and and beyond your your comfort right. level. But uh, in answering to your to your question, Phil, um, you know, is. You weren't fearful, but you were certainly concerned for your safety. So every time you went outside the wire, you were always looking around and making sure, yeah. you know, head on a swivel sort of thing, right? When you were driving through traffic and 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 whatnot. Exactly. I'm glad you mentioned, you know, not being too critical of those who tried it and, and couldn't cut it. I remember um, before I started university, I, I spent a summer up in 
northern northern Ontario, just, just south of Moosonee, which is right on James Bay. And I was at a, a camp in the middle of the bush. And of course, we were there during black fly season. And uh, we had a this is all high school students at the time. We were all finishing high school. And one of my my mates, uh, my friends, uh, he was up there and, and he basically he he, he kind of lost it because the black flies were so bad that they basically swarm in clouds around you. For anybody who hasn't been to, you know, central or northern Ontario, parts of Canada, when black fly season's out, it's not a good time to visit Canada. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and this poor guy, we had to send him back on the train. He just, he couldn't manage. So I don't think it's it's necessarily a black mark against you if, if you can't, you know, manage a situation that's dangerous. So, so Bill, you've written this book, uh, Cops and Cabal, um, which I'm going to recommend. My, I'm going to put a link to it on my on the website. This is an unfair question to ask you. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you have a, a, a gazillion experiences from your time in Afghanistan. If you were to summarize what it was like working as an RCMP officer, working with your Afghan colleagues, doing some training, doing some patrols, whatever it is that you're doing, how, how would you summarize the time you spent in Afghanistan, Bill? Uh, well, you know, I, I think um, I think that we did a lot of very good things there. Um, you know, they might they might be hard for people to find, but but you know, in in my book itself, I mentioned a number of of different things that uh, some of my colleagues uh, did while they were there, and uh, and especially given the environment, I mean, nothing was easy and. You always had uh, different organizations that seemed to be working at cross purposes to one another, um, but but one of the things uh, there was there was a young lady who uh, a sergeant from the Montreal City Police who set up a program to prevent the underage recruitment of boys into the Afghan National Police and the military because they were being abused. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that to me, that I, I, I consider that one of the, one of the most impressive accomplishments mm -hmm. during my time there. Now, you know, from my perspective, I, you know, we were just one contingent there in one, you know, a, during a 12 month period. Um, there was lots of other uh, police officers that were there as well over the course of the entire Afghan mission. And our mission was completely different from what my colleagues went through down in Kandahar. Uh, I mean, they were, of course, they were out doing presence patrols with the military and that, and I mean, yeah. that mm -hmm. extremely dangerous work. And I don't know mm -hmm. that a lot of people know about some of the work that they did down there. So, mm -hmm. uh, I've spoken to a number of my, my colleagues that served in Afghanistan and I said, look, you know, I think it's important that people know the type of work that you were doing there because there's a gap in history there. I think there's a gap in policing history yeah. in Afghanistan. Uh, everybody knows, you know, about the military contribution and all the, you know, incredible mm -hmm. work that they did and sacrifices that were made, but very few people know about the policing contribution that was made by uh, Canadian police officers. And not only the RCMP, there was a number of municipal forces from right across the country and provincial police forces that participated in the mission. Also, oh, it wasn't just the RCMP. There was a, it was more of a sort of a uh, uh, sort of all hands on deck uh, provincial and, and municipal forces that were part of the mission as well then. That's correct because, and uh, I, the, the Canadian policing agreement, which governed the, our actions in uh, Afghanistan, 
that was that was to be applied to all all police forces who decided to participate in the mission. So, okay. as an example, of course, you had the RCMP there, the Ontario Provincial Police, the uh, mm-hmm. Montreal City Police. You had Halifax. You had uh, mm-hmm. people from Saskatoon, Calgary, Toronto Metro had a big. Oh presence. wow! Yeah, like so, we had folks. We had folks from all across the country. Um, which was great. I mean, because everybody brings a significant level of expertise. Um, and you had people there who were, you know, fairly young in service, you know, five to seven to 10 years. Mm -hmm. And then you had other people with 30 plus year service. So it was, uh, you know, there was a lot of good work done by a lot of, a lot of folks. I, I had no idea, Bill, that it was such a uh, pan-Canadian effort. I'm really glad you pointed that out. You, you mentioned that, of course, you know, we here in Canada hear an awful lot about the military mission in Afghanistan. Of course, Canada was one of the first NATO partners to join the Americans after the events of 9-11. And we were there for, well, well over a decade. Uh, and in fact, uh, I th- we got Kandahar, which, as you said, was one of the most dangerous parts in Afghanistan. I believe, I don't know what the exact death total, but it's over 150 Canadian soldiers died in Afghanistan during that time. You also pointed out that, um, you know, we don't know a lot about the, the police presence in Afghanistan. What message do you want to give to my listeners, many of whom are Canadian, probably had no idea that the that Canada did send police officers such as yourselves and your colleagues to Afghanistan to engage in a very, very dangerous, challenging mission, what do you what do you want them to know about that? If you could summarize that, you know, in in a fairly briefly brief fashion, what are the essential parts that Canadians should grasp and take home about the Canadian police mission in Afghanistan? Well, you know, again, I, <clears throat> excuse me, it, it it was a very very challenging environment, and and for me personally, it was you know not only challenging, but it was probably one of the most rewarding war, uh, things that I've ever done in my career. And I think that if you were to speak to uh, any of the Canadian police officers that served over there, they would probably de- echo the same sentiment. In terms of messages, um, you know, uh, places like Afghanistan, um, there there are lots of very fine and good people that live in that country that are mm. all trying to go about their business, just live their lives, just have their you know, their, their families grow. And, and, and by way of example, Phil, I'll, I'll tell you, there was a conversation that I had with uh, a, a young Afghan gentleman who worked at the embassy. He was married. He had three little boys. And uh, we, he was driving me somewhere in Kabul to a meeting one day. And this was two or three months after I'd been there. And I said to him, I said, what do you think of all this? You know, what do you think of us being here? just to get his take on things. And he said, look, you know, I know that you have come here to help us. I know that you have come here to at great risk to you and, you know, being away from your families. But he said, all I want to do is work, raise my boys, have them go to school and just live in peace. And I thought about that for a minute. And I said, you know what? You're no different than any other dad anywhere else yeah. in the world, yeah. right? And I think that, so true. And so I true. think that people have to understand that we're more alike than we are different, right? 
That, that that's a wonderful message, Bill. I I think that a lot of us see you know what's happening, whether it's Afghanistan or Somalia, and some of us will say, oh, those poor people. Others will say, well, well, what do I care? It's half a world away. Or maybe they made their own problems. Maybe you know they shouldn't have invited the Taliban in, or or maybe the Somalis shouldn't have invited Al Shabaab in, and. Maybe they, they own some responsibility for how bad the situation has gotten. But, you know, you, you, you raise a very, very good point. And that's people are people. Like you said, he's, he's just a young dad. Uh, he's got three kids. He's trying to raise them in the same way that you raise your children, the same way that I raise my children. And, and just trying to, you know, make your way through in life. It's, uh, it's really important, I think, for us to realize that. We may not be able to understand it to the same extent you did because, of course, you were there. But I think if we try to reduce this to the human level, we can gain a little more sympathy for, you know, people that have just suffered terribly for you know, the better part of, of, of two generations now, ever since the Soviets invaded in 1979. Yeah, no, I agree with you, Phil. I mean, uh, you know, anyone who looks at the history of Afghanistan will see, I mean, going back hundreds of years, back to Alexander the Great, there's always, yeah. There's, yeah. there's always been conflict in that country. And, and, you know, you can almost see it in the faces of the people that live there, how, uh, they're, they're battle weary, you know, uh, mm. and, you know, not knowing from one day to the next, if I go out and go to the market, you know, could that yeah. be my last day? Because I'm going to, you know, a, a, a car bomb is going to go off or, or whatever, but it's, um, you know, and you have so many different influences there as, as you know, in terms of, you know, you look around that neighborhood and you have people there that I used to, Afghanistan was kind of like the, the playing field, for the teams that would come in from, uh, you know, regionally from Pakistan and from Iran yeah. and from you yeah. know, other places, they'd come and they'd fight it out there and then they'd all go back home, regroup and fill the war chest again and come back at it yeah. again, you know? Yeah. So, and then the poor Afghan people pay the price kind of thing. I mean, it's, and on the other hand, it's, it's not for nothing that Afghanistan has long been called the grave, the graveyard of empires. I mean, going, you know, as you say, back to Alexander. Right. Bill, as you look back now, so now we're in early 2021. Uh, you were there a decade ago. I don't know how closely you follow what's happening in yeah. Afghanistan. Um, things aren't good. No. Uh, you know, the Trump, uh, the Trump presidency wanted to get out of Afghanistan. And, and that I, I understand the, the rationale and the thinking behind it. Americans have been there for 20 years. Uh, it is sometimes hard to see what progress has been made, even if some, in fact, has been achieved. And yet... Uh, I'm reporting day, at least an attack, usually three or four attacks a day in Afghanistan, including in Kabul, in, 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 the, in, the, in the capital. Uh, magnetic IEDs attached to cars, mortars, the Taliban engaged with Afghan National Army or police with guns. When you look back now, Bill, and you, you sort of project into what things are like now, how do you feel about this? Is there a, is there a sense of disappointment? Is there a sense of, gee... Um, we didn't really accomplish very much, did we? Because the situation is as bad, if not worse now. Is there a sense of, I don't know, despair? Or do you do you still remain kind of positive about your experience there? I, you know, in terms of our experience and, and what we, you know, collectively did there, I, you know, I think we did the best we could with what we had in the time that we had. Um, as far as, you know, what things look like today, I, you know, it, it's it's frustrating and, and it's it saddens me that, you know, things have appeared to have gotten somewhat worse. Um, and there's no way, you you know, there's there's not enough bombs and bullets in the world to solve the problems that are there. And, you know, from yeah. my perspective, 
it, it, try, continually taking that approach is not the correct approach. And uh, from, you know, I, I, the way I see it is, you know, social development, education, mm-hmm. uh, political engagement. Those are the things that are going to solve those problems, if ever. Um, but, but you're, you know, you're certainly not going to shoot your way out of it. So last question, Bill, are you cautiously optimistic, partly pessimistic? I mean, where do you stand now? Look, knowing what you saw, what you experienced and what seems to be happening today, as I said, it'd be pretty hard to conclude otherwise that the violence is going to continue in Afghanistan, depending on what the Americans do or do not do under Joe Biden. Where do you stand as of February of 2021, Bill? Well, you know, I've, I've considered myself to always to be an optimist. So, you know, I, I would like to think that things will improve, albeit very, very slowly. Um, I think it comes down to when you have the right people in the right places, uh, amazing things can happen. So, uh, you know, if you if you've got the right people at the negotiating table and, and people are willing to listen, uh, I think anything's possible. So I in answer to your question, Phil, I'm you know, I'm cautiously optimistic. I'm like you, Bill. I'm an optimist at heart, even if I uh, do immerse myself in terrorism writing and terrorism reporting every day, which is depressing sometimes. I, I think we have to definitely look at the uh, you know, the brighter side of the rainbow on this one. Bill, I want to thank you so, so much, not just for taking the time today to talk to me, uh, but for your service uh, to Canada, to the, in the RCMP, your time as a police officer, your dedication to the Afghan people. Uh, thank you very, very much. And uh, I wish you well going forward. Thank you, Phil. I really appreciate the opportunity. So that was Bill Malone. His, again, his book is Cops in Kabul, a Newfoundland peacekeeper in Afghanistan. I'll put a link to it on, on my website. Uh, I can't wait to read my copy, and I sincerely hope you get a copy as well. So what do you think of, of what uh, Bill Malone had to say about police forces in Afghanistan and, and international involvement, not just from the military, but but policing perspective? Love to hear what you think. You can reach me on email, borealisrisk at gmail.com, or on Twitter at borealisaves. You can also find me on LinkedIn and on Facebook. If you like the content want to get more, simply go to the website, borealisthreatenedrisk.com, hit the subscribe button. For free of charge, you get a daily digest, podcasts like these, all the blogs, the media, and also, you'll find a link to my newest book, The Peaceable Kingdom, The History of Terrorism in Canada from Confederation to the Present. There's a link there where you can, you can order your own copy. It's only $25 Canadian plus $5 shipping and handling. It's a story of, of, of terrorism in Canada as seen through the eyes of the RCMP and CSIS, the Canadian Security Intelligence Service. I think you'll find it interesting. I'll talk to you again soon. Uh, until then, stay safe.